I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Almost 20 years ago, I told the Labour government of Tony Blair and Jack Straw uh, that their foolhardiness in invading and occupying Afghanistan would come to naught, but not before an ocean of blood and a mountain of treasure was expended and wasted. As we see, watch the United States and Britain steal out of Afghanistan like thieves in the night a redolent of the scramble out of Saigon as the people's forces closed in on the American embassy. We are retreating under fire, scuttling under fire out of Afghanistan. And what was it all about? We are about to see the very same people back in power that we drove out 20 years ago. Just get your head round the 20-year war, one that cost over a trillion dollars, one that cost the life's blood of hundreds of thousands of people, Uh, the sanity of thousands more, the limbs of thousands more. It has been an unmitigated disaster, and I never took less pleasure than I do in saying, I told you so. This was madness from the beginning. Nobody has successfully invaded, occupied Afghanistan, not even Alexander the Great, and Joe Biden sure ain't Alexander the Great. I'll be talking throughout the show about Tony Blair because he's just announced that his Comeback plans have been put to one side. Well, the first thing I have to say is you can't believe a word that Tony Blair says. You can only tell he's lying because his lips are moving. So don't take that as the final word, but it's welcome insofar as it goes. The return of the sepulchral, satanic, majesty of Tony Blair to frontline British politics would have been a nightmare on Elm Street. That is for sure. It's not at all clear how he would have got back into the House of Commons, given that there are no safe Labour seats. Certainly not for Tony Blair to be found anywhere. I myself would have stood against him in any constituency in the country to give proper Labour people the opportunity to vote for proper Labour rather than the antithesis of Labour represented by Tony Blair. 
But I was doubtful that he was going to make a comeback for a couple of reasons which uh, are in addition to the difficulty of getting back into the House of Commons. First of all, you've got to register all of your income in the House of Commons. And that would have been embarrassing to say the least for Tony Blair, a man paid by the head-chopping, bone-sawing, Al-Qaeda and ISIS funding Saudi Arabia. That would have been difficult for a Labour leader to square. A hundred million pounds he's taken from the murkiest sources of finance on the planet. And it would all have been there in black and white. Of course, clever accountants would have done their best to wash the money. Uh, but the third reason uh, for not coming back into frontline politics is why bother? Tony Blair is back in charge. He is running the show. Peter Mandelson and Tony Blair are back running the Labour Party. Just think about that. Now, once upon a time, Andrew Cuomo was the great white hope of the Democratic Party. Like his father, something of an orator, but also something of the night about him. What we did not know then, but know now, is that as a sexual predator of a particularly pernicious kind, he had few rivals in American politics. Perhaps only Donald Trump was as base a predator as Andrew Cuomo has turned out to be. The investigation by the Attorney General uh, of the state of New York makes dismal, grisly, but devastating reading. There's no way back from that. There's no way to run again as governor of New York from that. There's no way to even dream of being a Democratic presidential candidate after all that. We'll be talking in a few minutes uh, to a woman who knows all about it. It was also the week in which the new Israeli premier, and if you needed any evidence that the new Israeli premier is no different to the last Israeli premier, announced that Israel was ready for war with Iran. Iran, of course, is ready for war with Israel, so it wouldn't be a one-sided war. And although Israel has hundreds of nuclear weapons, they would not be able to use them, not least because they'd be nuking the entire region in which they live and in which live their new best friends in Saudi Arabia in the United Arab Emirates and elsewhere in the Persian Gulf. I say coyly elsewhere because, well, I'm waiting for the official announcement before I give you the official denouncement of those particular regimes. But if it's a conventional war that Israel launches against Iran, it's going to find itself in a very difficult place very quickly. For a start, Iran has more than sufficient range and quality 
of missiles to land them in profusion on the territory of Israel and even more so on the territory of Israel's new best friends all around them. Anybody that allowed their airspace to be used, their sea lanes to be used for an Israeli attack on Iran would immediately become a combatant in the conflict that would ensue. And that's where I have to give my now annual advice to people, and I know a lot of you like to do it. Uh, Dubai would not be a safe place to be on holiday or to buy property in the event of an Israel-Iran war. Uh, because Dubai is very close by to Iran and would be incinerated in moments, within moments, of any Israeli attack on Iran. The Straits of Hormuz would be immediately blocked. 25% of the world's oil would thus become inoperable. Economic crisis would spread quickly throughout the world. The price of oil would multiply by several times. Saudi Arabia and its oil wells would also be easily within range of devastating Iranian counter-fire. Not just from Iran. You see, Iran has friends, and they have rockets. Uh, the resistance fighters in Yemen have already landed rockets on Saudi Arabia and would be sure to do so again. The resistance movements in Iraq have the weapons capability of landing missiles on Israel. But perhaps Israel's biggest problem would be the immediate creation of a new war front in Lebanon, where the resistance defeated the Israeli invaders and would-be occupiers just in 2006, and the anniversary of that has just passed. So if Israel is ready for war with Iran, as its prime minister says it is, it better be ready for a war with several other people too. And that's the problem, you see. Because if it was just a fight in a far-off place of which most people know little, that would be of only marginal moment. But the danger of everyone else being dragged into such a conflagration is great, not least because in their wisdom or lack of it, Britain and the United States have heavily interposed their naval assets into the Persian Gulf. They would be targets and they would presumably fire back and then we're into a multinational war in the Gulf. What could possibly go wrong? Just as we're ending the conflict in Afghanistan, we might be about to enter another one. Not that we've ever really gone away. I did a program yesterday for television uh, about uh, the secret fact that at least 50 British Special Forces soldiers are actually inside Yemen helping Saudi Arabia's 
doomed war effort against its poor neighbor, Yemen, where millions of children live on the brink of famine, prey to periodic waves of disease of almost primeval kind. How, having denied to the British Parliament that British forces were involved in this war, having denied to the British public and presumably the British sovereign whose armed forces they are, this can possibly be true, I'll leave you to work out. Not that anyone in Parliament is pressing them on it, uh, but I have learned, and it's now widely known, that our forces are in the Al-Ghada airbase in the eastern province of Yemen, which Human Rights Watch has denounced as a torture chamber. When I put it to a retired British military officer yesterday, how can our soldiers be in an airbase that Human Rights Watch have said is a place where widespread torture is being practiced? He answered, as I'm sure he'll come to regret, the British will be in a soundproofed hangar and therefore will hear no screams. That's the reality, grubby, bloody, dirty reality of Britain and the United States and its role across the world in the 21st century. I'm not even going to visit the crimes of the 20th or even of the 19th. In the 21st century, it's been one long bloody war, each one more disastrous than the next one. And the next one might be the most disastrous of all. We'll be talking about Donald Trump, about Joe Biden, about Boris Johnson, about Rishi Sunak. And I'm dedicating this show to my one-year-old daughter, Oban Amaria, who celebrated her first birthday in Scotland today. I couldn't be with her, but she's watching this on the screen now. I had to be in London presenting this show. But for your last child to celebrate her first birthday is a joy, I can assure you. So happy birthday, lovely Oban. Fasten your seatbelts, why don't you? Because this is the mother of all talk shows. You can watch us as well as listen on FM in the United States, in Washington, D.C., 105.5. You can listen on AM right across the United States from Burning City to Burning City. You can listen all over the world on SputnikNews.com. And you can watch, as half a million of you every week now are doing on all platforms, on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Telegram, on Twitch. I understand there are 16 platforms now on which you can watch the mother of all talk shows. But you can also download the podcast every single week, which is doubling every single week. I'm not joking. It can't go on doubling, but it has doubled every single week 
since we began it and is now one of the most watched political podcasts anywhere in the world. Now we've got a poll running. Were the US and the UK right to pull out of Afghanistan? A, yes, B, no, C, should never have gone in. You know, and it's a very, thank you for, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate, great. And I'm Scottish, I'm very passionate about what's happening there, you know. I had a great mom, she was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland and I love the Scottish food. It's great food, I said to Melania, you know, haggis, look at that. What's more than, more Scottish than that? Me, I am that haggis. She said, what, thin-skinned and full of crap? Patrick Christie's has gone on uh, to local television. Uh, he's now got a job at GB News. We wish him, of course, all the best, and I hope it was a good career move to go from global to local. We'll soon see. Now, uh, that poll is closed. Uh, Were well, the US-UK right to pull out of Afghanistan? Over 2,000 people voted. Uh, yes, 29%. No, 23%. Never have gone in, 48%. But there was also, of course, voting on other platforms. And the greater of those was on the YouTube platform. So 911 people voted. And the results were similar, but, but stronger. 35% uh, said that we were right to pull out. Only 10% said that we were wrong. And 54% said we should never have gone in. And by the way, on the podcast, Four times as many people have downloaded last week's podcast while we've been on the air. Thank you for that. We're now in the top 100 uh, podcasts in Britain, uh, political podcasts that is, and there are thousands and thousands of those. So uh, for something that only started a few weeks ago, a big thanks to the people uh, who are working on that, particularly young Simon, uh, a rising star. I don't want to, to boost him too much in case he ends up going to local television somewhere uh, as well. That's the thing, you see, you, you bring on all this talent and they go down to local, uh, <laughs> local media. Uh, now, uh, the one and only Rachel Blevins is up next. Rachel, as always, a warm Welcome to you from London. Um, we were talking earlier to one of your compatriots uh, about the Andrew Cuomo story. I won't repeat uh, everything there. I want to examine, if you like, the bigger picture. Uh, is it possible that what Cuomo is alleging, uh, which is that he's a victim of a political carve-up, that his rivals for his job and rivals in the Democratic Party uh, have conspired against him? Or is that just flailing around looking for someone else to blame? You know, George, I think it's interesting that that has been his immediate response because 
so often whenever accusations come out like this, the person who is being accused immediately says, that's it, I resign, I'm done here. But Andrew Cuomo has really stuck to his guns on this one and insisted that he's innocent. And now we're starting to hear more of the claims from the women who say that they were victims in all of this. We're starting to see their faces and hear these stories. And I mean, the stories are incredibly bothersome when you hear of these women saying that they were groped by Cuomo in the workplace, saying that he was abusing his power and it is one of those cases where, you know, of course, yes, you have a situation where you have a he said, she said on it. It looks like he's going to stick to his guns on it. But it is incredibly notable that we have this report from New York's attorney general saying that they interviewed hundreds of people who said that, yes, Cuomo was in violation of state and federal law when it came to his conduct within the workplace. And it also is notable here that this is the same attorney general who also called out Cuomo earlier this year when it came to how the state was handling COVID cases, specifically in nursing homes. And I think if there were any way that his political opponents were going to try to go after him and get him out of office, it would have been with a case like that when you had the state of New York allowing residents to go into nursing homes after they had tested positive for COVID-19. You had staff in those nursing homes who said that they were told that they could be fired or that they could be retaliated against in other ways if they didn't show up to work even when they were sick. And so I think this is the kind of person who, whenever it comes to whatever his political opponents may have tried to get against him, they could have had a lot more before this report came out. Sure, uh, but uh, this is uh, eerily familiar uh, because in Scotland, uh, the Scottish government did exactly what Cuomo did. Uh, they sent uh, uh, people with COVID into care homes uh, where those care homes were simply incapable of, unable to defend the uh, other uh, people in the care home uh, or the staff of the care home, and thousands died. And there will have to be a court case about that. But maybe the uncomfortable truth is uh, that uh, dead old people uh, is less important in certain circles uh, than Me Too allegations of grotesque uh, behavior by a man against women. Yeah, that, that is true. And that is incredibly unfortunate that we live in a day and age where, especially when it comes to the media coverage, because I mean, the same media that spent months showing all of Cuomo's briefings and talking about how wonderful he was and how great he was and how he should have been the president at a time when, of course, Trump was in office. And they just sang Cuomo's praises nonstop and they acted like he could do no wrong. And now all of a sudden they're kind of turning the tide and saying, oh, well, listen to all of these accusers. Let's give them all the airtime. Now, I'm glad that they're giving them the airtime if that's the case that they're finally speaking out. But at the same time, it also serves to remind you just exactly what the media does and how they treat those news cycles. And how, of course, they're not going to admit any wrong in any of this, you know, whenever it comes to their coverage of Cuomo over the last year. Yeah, they built uh, Cuomo up as a presidential uh, hopeful. Uh, his brother, who's very thick with him and works with him, not just uh, uh, as a brother, but as a colleague and works with him in many ways, is a big CNN uh, talk show host. Uh, 
Cuomo was a liberal, a liberal dream boy, poster boy. Yeah. Uh, are the liberals embarrassed at all? Um, I mean, I think the liberals are going to be embarrassed about just about anyone that's in a number of positions in their party at the moment because they don't seem to quite have any direction when it comes to you look at Biden, you look at Kamala Harris, and you look at the fact that the only reason that these people got public support was because they were anti-Trump. They weren't Trump. And I think that's kind of what it brings it back to when you look at the media's love fest with Cuomo over the last year. Well, it's because you had Donald Trump in the White House. They didn't really want to talk about him. They wanted to criticize him. So then they bring in Cuomo and put the attention on him. And so I think it serves as a reminder that Look, past Trump, the Democrats really haven't put up any hopefuls who would actually be able to win the White House. And that should be a problem for them. That should be something that they're focusing on. But instead, at the moment, they seem to just be focusing on the fact of, look, we have all these people. They all aren't great, but they're not Donald Trump. Yeah, uh, that's a wasting asset, uh, in, in my opinion. The longer uh, Trump is out of office, the more inevitably people will start to look at the people who actually are in power and that isn't a good look. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the video that the rest of us have over here was quite big uh, of President Biden this very week getting up to his old tricks with a young girl uh, yeah. in front of the White House and the world's media. He's behaving in a way to a young girl, which if he did, to my daughter, I would knock his block off. I would punch him and tear my daughter away from him. Although you've got to ask, why do people keep serving up their kids uh, to Joe Biden? Do the American people have any idea how bad this all looks? Oh, I, you know, I agree with you 100%. And you really asked the question of where are these kids' parents? Because this is not the first time that we've seen him completely invading the public space of a young child acting inappropriate around a young child. And it seems like none of the other adults are around to say or do anything. And yet he's still allowed to continue to do that. And I think that's part of the problem that we live in a country where everything is so politicized. Because I remember when these past videos came out, when Biden was on the campaign trail, a lot of people said, well, nah, that's just old, or they just shrugged it off, or they didn't seem to care about it. And they came back to the fact of, oh, well, one, Biden's a Democrat, two, he's not Trump. And I think, as you said, it needs to come to the time where we actually start looking at who these leaders are in office, and we start wondering why they all seem to be so morally corrupt. I mean, Biden himself has sexual assault allegations against him. You know, we've seen him in videos with these young children. Why is this what ends up becoming the American leadership in this country? That's, that's something that I think that the American people really need to have a reckoning with and understand because it's not okay on any level he says he's going to run again uh that would mean that he would finally if he won he'd finally leave office at the ripe age of 86 uh young donald trump is the is the youth candidate up <laughs> against him if he runs uh i see that spicer former press guy has said that uh, Trump is definitely going to run next time. He's waiting for the results of the midterms uh, to tee up a relaunch. He's already raised over $100 million. 
his candidate just won the Republican nomination in the state of Ohio. Uh, it looks as if it's game on, doesn't it, Rachel? It certainly seems that way. And, you know, I think it's interesting because what also happened this week is that the Biden administration is really trying right now to pass this $1 trillion infrastructure package. And this is a package that really no one's happy with it because Republicans argue that it's not all infrastructure funding, even though it's got funding for roads, bridges, Internet access, that sort of thing. The Democrats aren't really happy with it because they say that it leaves out a number of things and they're going to then put up a $3.5 trillion infrastructure package, what they refer to as human infrastructure soon after this one. However, what's notable at this specific, about this specific package rather, is that Trump has come out in opposition to it. And he specifically told Republicans who support it that could backfire on you in the years to come. He's warned Republicans not to support this deal because it's the Biden administration's deal, but also because a number of Republicans already have. And so Trump is kind of in a place right now of testing how much control he still has over the Republican Party. And I think what you mentioned is a great point, which is this, it's like, look, Trump has already raised so many millions of dollars. He's going to continue to raise money going forward. And that's why the GOP at the end of the day will continue to support him. They may not like him, but they know where their paycheck is coming from. They know that he brings in the money. And so, yeah, we could see another race between these exact two candidates once again. And what's interesting is that there was a recent poll that came out that showed that the majority of Americans didn't want Trump to run. And I think a lot of that comes back to the fact that at the end of the day, if Trump runs, they think that it's going to be a lot more political bickering, which is what we've already seen. But at the end of the day, for the GOP and the Democratic Party, they see that as a win for them, because if people are bickering back and forth between these two political candidates, they're not looking at the policies they're presenting, and they're not looking at the policies that the Biden administration or the previous Trump administration has actually managed to follow through on. Those campaign promises that they swore they would get done that went by the wayside and never actually got fulfilled. <laughs> Finally, uh, and I'm grateful, Rachel, as always, for your time, uh, the scuttle out of Afghanistan has had a predictable result. Uh, the Taliban are on the march. I see just on the news there, uh, a minutes ago, they now say they control the Kunduz province. It won't be long before they're in Kabul, uh, firing in the air and dealing with their uh, erstwhile enemies. Um, are the American people prepared for that, do you think? <laughs> you know, it's interesting to see the response to that because this is something I know, this is something you've been saying is going to happen for years. This is something you and I have talked about on this show, which is that the Taliban even in the last few years, has been more powerful than at any point since the U.S. invaded, which means that the U.S. actually helped them to become more powerful than ever before. And yet so many of the American people, I think they don't even realize 
just what a catastrophe this has been. They didn't even realize likely that the United States was still in Afghanistan, still fighting a war against this group. And so what's interesting is that typically in a case like this, you would have a number of, you know, very out and about neocons here in the U.S. calling for the United States military to go in and to take on the Taliban. And you know why they're not doing that right now? Because over the last 20 years, they have been reminded that that isn't possible and that the U.S. has lost so severely that even the war lovers here in the U.S. aren't calling for them to go back in and to create another war because they know that it has been an absolute failure. But I think we also have to remember that the less we talk about it, the less we talk about just how many war criminals in the U.S. political class need to be held accountable for what they did in this country. And for 20 years of knowing that they weren't going to win a war, knowing that they were fueling corruption in this country, and yet they did it anyway, and they still have faced no consequences for it. Rachel Blevins, as always, brilliant. Thank you very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Just imagine if you were the widow of or the mother or father of one of the thousands of soldiers that left their lives, their limbs, their blood in the sand in Afghanistan. Wouldn't you be asking the people that sent them there why? what this was all about. Imagine being the last man to die in the Bush and Blair War in Afghanistan. Just think about that. The second poll is running now. Uh, Boris Johnson, a man who speaks Latin better than President Trump spoke English, has decreed apparently that Latin should be back in schools. Uh, so we're asking, should Latin be taught in schools? A, yes. B, no. C, ego sum non certos. You can vote on my Twitter feed. Let's hear from Scott in Glasgow. Go ahead, Scott. Hello, George. Hello, George. Uh, right, I'll get uh, straight to it. I'm the uh, tour driver of some well-known bands, and I was due to take them to some festivals. I'm uh, a few of them there headlining. Some okay. big festivals over, over Britain, yeah. the UK, actually. Yeah. Now, um, within a few days of me leaving, um, festival policy, the particular festivals I was driving them to, festival policy changed, and you could only enter the grounds if you were jabbed. Now... You know, what we've got at the moment here right, is a track and trace app that doesn't track or trace. Yeah. We've got a test that doesn't test. We've got a vaccine that doesn't vaccinate. Yeah. The last 18 months have been a military-grade psychological warfare operation on the planet. Not just one country, the whole planet. Military-grade Psycho, psycho and psychological warfare program on it. It's now, a funny program, my... uh, though, Scott. It's a funny program that has the uh, support of uh, uh, of uh, Kim uh, Kim Jong Un in North Korea, uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia, uh, the government in China, and the government of America and Britain. Uh, why would they all be involved in a psychological? war when they are in fact enemies well because they're all friends of the, the one thing and that's power that, that's what unites all corrupt people power 
and, and, and the wanting of more power. So if you ask me what you, what, why have they all suddenly come together, <laughs> they all want more power. Really? So, so yeah, the, the, power, the power to require you to be vaccinated delivering from your van in a, a, a park where a band is going to play at a festival. That's the kind of power they crave. Well, the, 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 I mean, we could break it down into that. Now, the, the, the festival policy changed, but we know that that's going to happen. Um, for me personally, that, that was a chance that was going to happen on the 1st of September. But the policy changed, and my job is at risk. My business is at risk. Why don't but you get jobs? Why don't you get jobs? Right. I'll, I'll, te I'll tell you why, George. I'll tell you why, George. Because the CDC came out a couple of days ago, and they said, the, the, um, not the viral load, but the, 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 the viral kind of viral load in your nose and your mouth is exactly the same from the vaccinated to the unvaccinated. It's untested. I mean, there's another two years. You look on Pfizer's page. Yeah, of it's course it's untested. Uh, it, it, was, unt it was introduced an emergency to deal with an emergency. Yeah, I know. I've yes, heard yeah. all that. Uh, and well, and frankly, frank, frankly, you're not going to persuade me of all that. So I'm asking you uh, yeah. a basic question. Are you saying that you will go into bankruptcy, you will no longer be able to do your job rather than get the vaccine? I would... Now, I will give my life to stop my kids getting jabbed with this. Yeah, my youngest, my youngest, my oldest has already had it. My youngest, that's a hill I will die on in every sense of the word. This is not a vaccine, George. You look at the Collins Dictionary, you look at the... It's the, a vaccine. The, uh, no, it's it, not look, a vaccine. It's a vaccine. It doesn't I've stimulate heard, immunity. Scott, I've heard all this bonkers. It's not bonkers, Sophistry George. before. It is a vaccine. It it's has not, not been tested. It it's is, not a vaccine. I've had two vaccinations of it. No, you haven't it had is, two vaccinations. It, You've had two injections of something. You haven't had two vaccinations. You've had two injections of something. What? Which Can you not find something no more worthwhile to get so irate about? What? what having, having children? Jab no, no we're not talking something. about children. We're talking about we are, you. We are. You're a no, grown, no, no. No, hairy no. arsed man that is ready to give up your job Put your family yep. into penury rather than get an injection that 88% of us have had. I think that is bonkers. I think it's you not, are bonkers. You need to get a grip bonkers. of yourself. You need no. to find something more worthwhile to do. There's war, famine, pestilence, disease, George. poverty, corruption right-wing rule, dictatorship, and you are infatuated by an injection. Clear off, mate. Uh, should Latin be taught in schools? Yes, 39%. No, 53%. C, ego sum non certus, 8%. If you, like me, have absolutely no idea what that third option uh, actually means, you can... Of course, uh, you can, of course, look it up in a dictionary. Peter says the Afghan people have lost, George. I thought you were better than this, to be honest. Give me a call, Peter. Tell me what you mean. And Oliver says, for some reason, George was on the jihadist side 
when it came to Yugoslavia. And that's the reason I will never trust him. I fought against the war on Yugoslavia with all my breath and all my heart. Me and Tony Benn and Jeremy Corbyn and others were practically the only people in this country opposing the war on Yugoslavia, the destruction of Yugoslavia. How dare you, you imbecile? If you have any guts, you'll pick up the phone right now and call this show and justify that utter slander. Really. And uh, Yoda says, love the show. Best entertainment. Well, the US-UK right to pull out of <laughs> Afghanistan. So far, it's A, yes, B, no, uh, sorry, yes, 30%, no, 23%, and C, never have gone in in the first place, 47%. So, uh, that is 77%. Say we were right to pull out or should never have gone in, 23% say we shouldn't be pulling out. You can still vote for the rest of this hour on my Twitter handle, at George Galloway. Now, you may recall one of the most powerful interviews that I have done in the last few months was with the attorney, Stephen Donziger, a brave man uh, who stood up to Chevron, the oil company, and called them, held them to account, caused uh, the courts to hold them to account for billions of dollars, but he's the one that's ended up under arrest. You'll remember the last time we spoke to Stephen, he was awaiting an appeal against a quite incredible situation. He is not in jail, but a private company has gotten a court to hold him under house arrest. And he's now been under that house arrest for two years, I think. He joins us now uh, in the wake of disappointing news, I think, Stephen, uh, on the appeal. Perhaps you would describe it to us. Thank you, George. It's good to be with you again. Um, you know, in a nutshell, I won a, or help indigenous peoples in Ecuador win a $9.5 billion pollution judgment against Chevron. Um, the judgment's been affirmed by six appellate courts in Canada and Ecuador, including the Supreme Courts of both countries. Chevron refuses to pay, um, and they've enlisted a U.S. judge, who's a former tobacco industry defense lawyer, to target me. Um, and I've been under house arrest now for two years. Um, the longest sentence ever given a lawyer for who's convicted of my supposed crime, the crime is contempt of court. I refuse to turn my computer over to Chevron. That's a longer story, but I'm well within my rights not to do so. Um, the longest sentence ever given um, is 90 days of home detention. And today is my 733rd day of home detention. This is being driven by Chevron every step of the way. The judge who charged me, the tobacco industry lawyer, um, he had his charges rejected by the normal federal prosecutor here in New York. He then appointed a private law firm to prosecute me. He hid the fact that the law firm, Seward & Kissel, that's the name of the firm, had Chevron as a client. 
he didn't the, the case wasn't assigned randomly as is normally required he, he gave it to a friend of his another judge who's a leader of the, of the Federalist Society which is a pro-corporate legal group in the United States funded by Chevron and other big fossil fuel companies so I'm being surrounded by Chevron lawyers they've essentially taken over the public function of prosecuting crime in my case first time it's ever happened it's a corporate prosecution It's wrong um, I'm begging the U.S. Department of Justice to take over the prosecution and stop this, what has essentially become a charade. Um, my appeal is still outstanding. Uh, it hasn't really even started yet. The judge just convicted me without a jury, Judge Preska, Kaplan's friend, um, the charging judge's friend. Uh, she wouldn't let me testify on my behalf and tell my story. She read the newspaper during the trial. And it was a you know preordained conclusion she would find me guilty. We were not surprised. I believe I'm innocent. Uh, most objective experts who look at this can't believe it's even happening. This all stems from legitimate um, dispute, litigation disputes I had in a civil case. Um, but it, it's led to two years of, of house arrest. My anniversary of house arrest, the two-year anniversary, was Friday, a couple days ago. And I'm really fortunate in this sense. There were rallies in 18 cities around the world for my release and, and to boycott Chevron until they release me. Bigger issue is we can't let the fossil fuel companies do this to people, you know, to lawyers and human rights advocates and environmental defenders who are successful in holding the major polluters accountable. It's a new playbook. We can't let them get away with it, and I intend to keep fighting it. So we have uh, a household name, Chevron, not only refusing to pay uh, fines that have been placed upon them by the lawful authorities in Ecuador uh, and going after the lawyer who exposed them, helped to expose them and convict them. And the U.S. government is sitting idly by while all this is happening? Well, yes. I mean, you know, it, I can't understand how you know, the responsible parties, the people in charge of criminal prosecution in this country can let a private Chevron law firm prosecute its biggest critic. I mean, it's an embarrassment for the rule of law. It's a violation of the rule of law. It's an embarrassment for our country. Completely undermines the moral authority of the United States government to even talk about human rights issues in other countries. And you know, we're, again, we're calling on the Biden administration and the Dep U.S. Department of Justice to stop this case, take it over, and prosecute me directly. Of course, I believe if that were to happen, they would dismiss the case for the obvious reason that the charges against me, we believe, are baseless. And even if I were guilty, which, I, again, I assert that I'm not, but let's assume for purposes of argument that I am, I've served eight times the maximum sentence ever given to someone. So this is just a waste of resources, a waste of public resources. The Chevron law firm, by the way, has been paid about a million dollars by taxpayers to prosecute me on a misdemeanor. Misdemeanor here is a very petty crime with a maximum sentence of six months in jail. It's a minor crime. And they've spent a million dollars to prosecute me, paid by taxpayers, after the normal federal prosecutorial authorities rejected the case. Well, what would happen, Stephen, if you just said, this is a joke, uh, I'm no longer staying under house arrest, who then would apprehend you? 
the federal marshals, the 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 police. Even you know, the though judge, even though it's not a federal court that is, that is handling the case. Well, so you know the way this went down is the Chevron law firm, you know, prosecuted me, went into the judge who again is a Chevron connected judge and said we want him locked up because we think he's a risk of flight, he'll go to Ecuador, which was just preposterous. I have a wife and son here and I've never missed a court appearance and they, they knew that was BS. But they used that as a pretext to lock me up. Um, so the judge went along with it and uh, with the request of the Chevron law firm. But again, they're all kind of working together, in my opinion, to try to undermine the Ecuador pollution judgment and you know weaponize me to intimidate other human rights activists. So they have every incentive to keep me locked up for as long as possible. It's actually quite scary. And so other marshals outside your door? No, I mean, right now I'm complying and always have complied or done my absolute best to comply with my conditions, which includes staying in my home 24 seven, other than a few times I go out with the permission of a court officer for things like legal meetings and medical appointments. So, you know, the marshals are not here and I don't expect them to be here because I'm complying with my conditions. Have you thought about doing a runner somewhere? Meaning running away? Yeah. I mean, if, if I were you, I think I'd, I'd head to a friendly embassy or at least to the airport. No. Have, have they got not, your passport? No, that's not how I roll. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I... I Look, I'm a rule of law guy. I believe this is wrong. I'm not running away. We are confronting this, and we expect to correct this problem, both to save me and my family, but also to help protect the rule of law in the United States, because we don't want this happening again. So, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm complying with these orders, and ultimately, the judges who are attacking me are not the ultimate deciders. It's going to a higher court real soon. And I expect them to give very quick relief. Just to remind us finally, how shocking were Chevron's crimes in Ecuador? Uh. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Probably the worst oil-related disaster in the history of the planet. They deliberately dumped 16 billion gallons of cancer-causing toxic oil waste into rivers and streams that were relied on by indigenous groups in the Amazon for their drinking water, for their fishing, for their bathing, for their sustenance. They polluted the air. Um, they polluted the food supply. 
And these are indigenous groups that for millennia had lived prosperously in the rainforest with no money. I mean, they had everything they wanted or needed, um, including medicines and shelter and food and fish and, you know, clean water, clean air. And in a few short years, Chevron, through its predecessor company, Texaco, went in and poisoned the whole area. It's a 1,500 square mile area. I emphasize this was not an accident. This was not like what BP did in the United States in the Gulf of Mexico. This was by deliberate design. This was a production system designed to pollute, to save $3 a barrel. And the people paying the price are the five indigenous nations who are barely hanging on and are facing extinction because they can no longer be supported by the forest in their traditional way of life because the forest has been deliberately poisoned by Chevron. You know, having been held accountable in a court of law, by the way, the case was held in Ecuador at Chevron's request. They insisted the case be in Ecuador. They promised to comply with any adverse judgment. But once we got the judgment, they're like, oh, we're not paying. You know, we're going to, and they threatened the indigenous people with a lifetime of litigation unless they gave up on the case. And then they, there was an internal email we found. We're like, oh, our new defense strategy is to demonize Donziger, meaning me. They never want to talk about the merits of what they did. They never want to talk about the environmental crimes they committed, the mass industrial size poisoning of the rainforest by literally dumping four million gallons a day of scalding oil wastewater into rivers and streams with no warning to the people. Um, they lied, the, the Chevron engineers lied to the indigenous leaders saying that oil was like milk, it had vitamins. I mean, the level of abuse, George, is uh, it's shocking. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of abusive behavior in the fossil fuel industry in Nigeria and many countries. But I have talked to a lot of oil workers who worked in dozens of countries around the world, and they say they have never seen anything as bad as what Chevron did in Ecuador. It, it belongs in the drawer marked unbelievable. Uh, I, I found it difficult after our first interview uh, to uh, understand how this can be allowed to happen. I must say I feel even more so. Now, Stephen, uh, the best of luck. When will we hear about the uh, next appeal? Yeah, I'll, I'll keep you posted. If people want to keep up with the case, follow me on Twitter at S. Donziger or on Instagram, Stephen Donziger. The other thing is we have a website, DonzigerDefense.com, D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R, Defense.com. Sign up. You'll get our email newsletter. And um, if you want to help financially, we have a defense fund. It, it does take resources to fight this monster. Um, and if you can help, please do. But come anyway to the site, even if you can't, sign up and get involved. We, we're building a campaign out of this. Now, I, are we spelling uh, defense uh, correctly or in the American way? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the American way, the incorrect way. So it's okay. Donziger, D-E-F-E-N-S-E. Thank com. you. Stephen, thank you very much. God bless you and protect you. Thank Appreciate you, George. That, for uh, very much uh, indeed. If you're in the United Kingdom, it's 0808196552. If you're in the United States, it's plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. Let me hear from you. I was just listening to your previous callers about the manufacturing of consent. Yeah. People 
are powerless. They're drowning in a cocktail of confusion and they just don't know what to do and they know no one's speaking up for them. It's bristling out there amongst the white English working class. They feel that Labour hates them and they hate Labour back. I, I think the, the idea of this capitalism thing that we, we have limited respect for, which is linked with freedom compared to like a, a strict socialist, um, people going on to welfare and, and not being able to work. And I, I feel like that almost the, the world, this great reset and build back better and all these key words that seem to come out with team um, country leaders all over the world, it seems to me to be a little bit worrying. Now, uh, you shouldn't be any more worried than you were before, but you shouldn't be any less worried than you were before either. If you're a lawyer, which unfortunately, what's his name, Keir Starmer is, um, he's spending all of his time being right about everything. You know, he can't appeal to every community. It's not good enough. It really isn't good enough. You know, there were there were four other candidates and they were all better than him. Why has the Labour Party failed so miserably? I mean... Well, the Labour Party has fallen out of love uh, with the British people and the British people have reciprocated. Yeah, but don't you think Labour had some part to play in that, though, with the whole yeah. classism thing? I mean... Like, you're supposed to be old Labour, right? You went against new Labour, in better commas. Uh -huh. Do you think it's on people like you to promote actual well, Labour policies or <laughs> no, whatever? No, why should I... What do I owe the Labour Party, Dan? I think the Labour Party is a cata catastrophic disaster. It so has... Do about it, then. Why, why are you complaining about it? Why don't you do something about it right? instead of complaining? It's... But Dan obviously doesn't know that I'm actually the leader of a rival political party and stand against the Labour Party in the, in the elections. And George, do you know something else? You're not going to sing again, I, are you? For the last time you spoke to me... You ain't nothing but a hound dog Crying all the time Well, you ain't yeah. never caught a rabbit You ain't, ain't no friend of mine You've actually got a great voice. We've got lots of stupid leaders around the world, of course, and also stupid would-be leaders, one of whom would appear to have been the governor of the state of New York, Andrew Cuomo. I talked earlier about the scandal in which he is now enveloped, but let's hear from an expert. Alexandra Brodsky is a civil rights attorney and the author of Sexual Justice. Alexandra, many thanks for coming on the Mother of All talk shows. Perhaps you would sketch first exactly what the report into uh, Andrew Cuomo's uh, horrific uh, sexual predatory activities actually concluded. Sure. So uh, Cuomo had faced a whole range of different allegations of verbal and physical sexual harassment. And um, the attorney general's office in New York deputized some independent attorneys to interview a huge number of witnesses, review you know, uh, voluminous documents, and concluded that uh, Cuomo had engaged in a sustained pattern of groping and sexual comments and uh, 
just, you know, uh, sexual harassment really of every kind of women on his staff and within New York government more broadly, um, you know, pulling in women to work on his detail who technically didn't fit the qualifications, but he had seen the day before, um, touching them in all, all sorts of ways. And uh, the report concluded that these allegations were true and that many of them likely violated both state and federal law. So Cuomo is now facing probes from district attorneys who appear to be considering criminal charges. Now, we'll come to the criminal charges uh, in a minute. Uh, but the political impact is surely fatal, isn't it? You know, I I would like to think so. Uh, you know, we see it appears uh, legislators really getting in line, ready to move forward with impeachment. But Cuomo uh, has um, really nine lives, it seemed like. I was shocked that he survived the initial wave of allegations where I think that many other politicians would have stepped down if they faced, you know, a, a quarter of the allegations he had faced back, you know, earlier this year. Um, and his defenses at this point seem really thin. He's talking vaguely about political conspiracies to take him down um, when it looks like the investigation here was done, uh, you know, really, you know, all above board, um, you know, impeccable attention to detail. But, you know, again, we'll, we'll see. I, you know, never... Uh, uh, there seem to be no, you know, bottom to uh, how dirty uh, New York politics can get. And he certainly still does have allies in power. Uh, it wasn't uh, a death sentence then when President Biden said that he should resign, partly because of President Biden's own uh, rather murky past in these things. Yeah, I mean, whenever Biden is called to comment on uh, these kinds of allegations, it's always a little bit complicated. Um, you know, what, what I what I think uh, is, I guess, you know, different and I hope fatal uh, for Cuomo's political career is that uh, lawyers have found their receipts. They've corroborated these evidence. You know, what I have found in you know my work as an attorney and in my research, and which I discuss in my new book, is that often. Um, uh, when, you know, powerful men are accused of these kinds of offenses, they, you know, call out for due process, which is, you know, really important. You know, when people face accusations of any kind, they deserve to have their chance to be heard, to see the evidence, all of that. But they use due process, um, this, you know, legal term to really mean I shouldn't get in trouble. And they keep moving the goalpost. You know, they keep saying that needs to be proven up again. That there needs to be another investigation, that there needs to be, you know, a whole other trial. And, um, you know, I, I think what we're going to have to see here is whether New York voters and legislatures recognize that Cuomo has gotten a fair process um, and that he just doesn't like the result. He doesn't like the verdict or if they're gonna allow him and you know his, the powerful group of attorneys that he has brought together to defend him um, to make him seem like a victim of you know, a, a political conspiracy, a victim of um, you know, a failure of due process um, who needs another series of months, you know, another year of investigation before we can quote unquote know the truth. And you know, if the more time that Cuomo is able to buy, uh, the longer, you know, the bigger risk there is that political will dies out and bigger risk that he's just able to sort of, you know, end up, you know, finish his term um, and never actually have to step down. Uh, his default position in the past has been to say everyone's out to get him because he's an Italian. 
Has that uh, has that defense been out yet? You know, I haven't. I, I know that he does like to to pull on that. I haven't seen him use that line here. Um, you know, he has this whole you know theory that's honestly kind of embarrassing about how um, you know. Uh, people who have investigated him for ethics violations in the past are now trying to uh, trump up these charges against him to take him down again. You know, I, I don't think that having um, I don't find that argument particularly compelling because it all depends on him, you know, us looking to his long history of unethical behavior that required law enforcement investigation. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of his defense at this point also boils down to, you know, everyone's so sensitive these days. I'm friendly to everyone. He had this ridiculous slideshow of him kissing all kinds of different politicians on the cheek as though that was proof that uh, what these women were complaining of is just how he interacts with everyone. Um, but, you know, I, the uh, New York City mayor, Bill de Blasio, I think put it well when he said there's no generational divide about whether you can put your hand up someone's shirt and grope them. Um, you know, th that's just not the kind of allegations that we're dealing with here. He also uh, told the state trooper on his detail that it, when he was looking for women, uh, they had to be women that liked pain. Uh, that was uh, a particularly disturbing aspect. Can you enlighten us on that? Yeah, I'm just totally gross. And I think, you know, really um, shows how silly it is for him to pretend that he's just, you know, a casual guy who's just having, you know, jokey conversations in the workplace with his colleagues. Um, you know, that's not the uh, the kind of comment that you were ever allowed to make in the workplace. And if you were, that was a problem. That was part of the problem that, you know, Me Too and movements against sexual harassment have been trying to fix. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think it I think it speaks to not just a lack of boundaries or a lack of judgment, but really a, a desire to make people uncomfortable, to push them, um, to... Uh, you know, to deny their their humanity and their right to you know participate in the workplace um, safely without that kind of sexualization. Uh, so yeah, I, you know, I think that anyone who reads this report um, really just has to conclude that this man it can't be trusted to govern New York. And um, you know, maybe it's a shame that they feel like their political futures were tied to him, as I imagine is the case with many of his defenders. Um, but, you know, we've got the facts and now we need the legislature to just, you know, move forward and pull the trigger. All, all he needs metaphor because he'll just go on with his life being fine and, you know, being perfectly famous and wealthy and in privacy. Uh, all he needs now is Bill Clinton to come out and uh, defend him. Have the Clintons any particular relationship to Cuomo? You know, I don't know the answer to that, but I think um, uh, the it's actually comparing how Democrats have responded to Cuomo versus how they responded to the allegations against Bill Clinton that have you know continued over the years, I think actually points to progress that, you know, like this isn't true of the Republicans, but at least the Democrats aren't willing to um, protect their own um, when, you know, the facts come in and it's clear that someone's really crossed a line. And I, you know, I don't think that that was true even a couple of years ago. And I certainly don't think that that was true in the nineties when Clinton was president. So what happens next? Uh, what federal charges might be brought? What uh, state charges might be brought? So, you know, I think that that is up to a lot of different um, district attorneys in a lot of different um, parts of the state, because, um, it, you know, the, the report suggests that 
Cuomo committed some potential criminal offenses in different jurisdictions. But it seems like he might have violated some federal sexual harassment laws and also just local sexual assault laws. And, um, you know, I've read that some district attorneys are investigating and deciding whether to bring forward charges. I wouldn't be shocked if one of the reasons that Cuomo is holding on right now and refusing to step down is that he's hoping that he can negotiate some kind of deal where he'll agree to resign um, in exchange for, um, uh, you know, some kind of immunity from further charges. And I don't, you know, there are so many different legal players here um, you know, so many different legal, you know, state and local offices that that seems complicated. But I do wonder if that's part of why he, you know, he's not just going going quietly now. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City. He has his eye on the governorship. Uh, where Cuomo to fall? Uh, might he uh, be his successor? And how squeaky clean is he? Oh, um, you know, I've never heard anything about de Blasio in terms of sexual harassment. He's had some um, corruption investigations of his office. It's funny, if you'd asked me this a year ago, I would have said there is no way in hell. New Yorkers were really mad that de Blasio, rather than focusing on the task in front of him as mayor, was um, distracted by political ambitions. But we've just gone through this really messy mayoral race where suddenly I think Bill de Blasio is looking pretty good comparatively, but I think someone who's uh, definitely come out of this, you know, this whole investigation looking like a very serious contender is Tish James, who's the attorney general um, who likely has uh, uh, gubernatorial ambitions of her own. And tell us about your book, uh, finally, uh, Sexual Justice. Seems like a good time to be bringing out that book, I must say. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's funny. So the book is about um, sexual harassment and due process. And it seems like there's just, um, you know, for worse, there's just sort of always new material. But, you know, what I talk about in the book is uh, how it really is very important that when allegations of sexual harassment are levied, whether against, um, you know, famous men or just ordinary people, that the accused get the chance to be heard and tell their side of the story. But it's also true that um, bad actors, particularly but not exclusively on the right, will uh, co-opt this rhetoric of due process in order to um, further their true goal, which is just you know impunity, which is tolerance for sexual harm, and that we have to be able to hold both of those ideas in our head at the same time. So the book comes out um, uh, earlier, uh, excuse me, later this month, um, and uh, I'm I'm you know glad to be part of this conversation. Alexandra, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows and good luck with the book. As you say, no shortage of new material. Thank you. Amen. Thanks for having me. For joining us. Uh, Now, uh, some social media. Uh, Kingsley says, thank God it's Friday. Thank George it's Sunday. Informed is knowledge is food. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, Marek says the Taliban were just waiting for them to leave so they could impose Islamist rule again. And the US and UK knew it. So what did they achieve in all those years? Precisely nothing. Precisely right. And Ron says, I really have no idea, George. It is all very complex. How do you withdraw without handing the country to the Taliban? I leave you to work this sort of thing out. 
Westminster and Washington can't. Well, as the Irishman probably apocryphally said when asked the direction to Dublin, I wouldn't have started from here. And John Miles says, we can't undo the mistakes of the past, but we should have learned from the USSR's futile experience in Afghanistan during the 1980s. And Stryker says, they were wrong to leave since they left the job unfinished, should have completely annihilated the Taliban and pressurized Pakistan to stop funding, training and supporting them. Stryker, you can pick up your tin hat and your uh, body armor at the door. Uh, Soraya says, frankly, the world is complicit in giving them a carte blanche to kill and ravage. UN Security Council adopted Resolution 1373 and all who voted in favor are guilty. And Baggy says, yes, enough dead Westerners. Leave them to it. If they want to stone women to death in sports stadiums, it just goes to prove that religion, especially as, as especially Islam, is backwards. Who needs to stone women in stadiums? Blow their heads off with drones and B-52s instead. And Emma says Afghan heroin, heroin prices are already going up in the USA. And Brian Holden says America has leapt from barbarism to decadence without touching civilization. Great Oscar Wilde quote, Brian. And Enrique says they have tried to provoke Iran in all ways possible to retaliate. So to use that as a precursor to start a war. If I was Iran, I would say don't fall for the trap. Now, here's the phone numbers. If you're in the United Kingdom, the phone lines are open. It's completely free to call, and the number is 08081 9655522. That's 08081 9655522. If you're in the United States, it's also completely free to call the show. And it's uh, plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. That's plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. You can email the show at any time on air at moats.tv. And you can, of course, tweet us at George Galloway at RTUK. Now, uh, let's take a call. Have we got one? Michael is in Sydney where it's early in the morning. Michael, very, very good of you to call. Oh, I've stayed up, especially George. I've missed the last few shows, um, but I was up late last night, so I just stayed very awake nice. and I slept today. Thank you very much for that, Michael. Go ahead. That's all right. That's all right. Just, I'm just ringing about, um, obviously, the last guest. I mean, look, I fully support, um, obviously, the cause for women's justice and everything. Um, it was quite convenient. Um, I did a bit of a cursory research on the guest, and you know, she, she's written for the New York Times and the Washington Post, and she obviously seems to be quite entrenched within the Democratic Party. There seems to be a bit of civil war going on there in New York, which seems to what this is all about. And the same group of women who are coming out and blasting the Biasio are silent on Tara Reid and Joe Biden and, and his alleged affair and his alleged you know, his hair sniffing and all that type of weird stuff that he does. Totally he was doing it again this week? Biden yeah, was, know, was doing it again this week? Who gives their yeah. small child... 
to Joe Biden to sit next yeah. to, to yeah, sniff their hair and nuzzle their neck. This is the president of the United States yep. of America with a kid. Yep. Yeah, she probably she probably belongs to the same faction as Hillary Clinton, who defended George through all his um, I'm sorry, who defended Bill through um, all, all his sexual jaunts and you know, through the White House, and you know Donald Trump. I mean, really, the, the only I mean, president really in my life that I remember, I do remember Reagan and the first Bush, and is really the second Bush. I mean, like he's really, I mean, other than being a war criminal and an outright filthy human being, I mean, at least he wasn't accused of anything sexual that I know of. No, he um, just uh, you know, but, he just uh, killed and tortured a lot of folks. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and blew, up, and blew up a lot of women, but that's all right. We can blow up brown women, women and children. But um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but also, just on the you talked about Iran. Um, I was going to say, like, as America's actually um, conveniently put all their bases within missile range of Iran, and um, actually, actually, there's been reports coming out. Um, it's been publicised on RT and other news channels that America's actually withdrawn all its um, all its fleet, uh, out of, all its naval fleet, out of the Persian Gulf and moved it to the Red Sea and to the Mediterranean because they're within striking distance of the Iranian standoff weapons. As well, a lot of people don't really understand about the change in military balances. You, you don't have to be, like, you know, 500 kilometres away anymore to strike. You know, you, you can strike 1,000 kilometres away. And actually, and you're talking about Hezbollah, you're talking about Syria, you're talking about the PMU, um, you know, you're talking about Yemen. They're all within striking range of, of these American vessels sitting in, 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 in the Red Sea and in the Mediterranean. Um, you know, and the PMU has weapons, the popular mobilization units in Iraq, Syria has weapons, Hezbollah has weapons. Um, and, you know, the old arc of instability, well, they've, they've destabilized it, but it's actually, they've actually united it in destabilizing it. Um, so they've achieved the very thing they, um, they set out not to achieve. Well, that quite, uh, I mean, missile technology is a great leveler, uh, and you can claim you've got an iron dome. Uh, it's doubtful whether the iron dome stops uh, a decent percentage, never mind all, uh, of the well, ordinance they, they, uh, coming in. But the America has of, actually approved. Yeah. America, America, America has approved a resupply, an emergency resupply of the Israeli Iran, uh, um, Iron Dome system. Um, just recently, $700 odd million worth of weapons back after the war with, uh, after, after the brief um, war with um, Hezbollah, I mean, with, um, in, 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 Gaza. in the, um, sorry, in, in Gaza. So what are they going to do when they've got, when they've got Hezbollah, they, they've got Syria, they've got Yemen, they've got Iraq, they've got Iran, and they've got um, possibly even Yemen launching weapons against them. I mean, like, you know, I mean, coming from all directions, from everywhere, and the five or six countries doing it, as opposed to one little Gaza Strip doing it. Absolutely. A very, very well put. Uh, the, the, the days of Israeli military hegemony in the region are gone. Uh, and it shows, again, the law of unintended consequence. Uh, in destroying yeah, the Arab power in Iraq, uh, the United States and the United Kingdom brought forth a Persian power in the Gulf, yep. uh, one which yep. has a very long and wide reach. Uh, and in case anyone hasn't noticed, Turkey's sharpening its sword too. Yes. It's not exactly on friendly yes. terms with Israel at the moment as well. Yes, and Israel and actually, Iran has and Turkey described... are quite, Iran, Iran and Turkey are quite close at the moment. Yeah, and uh, the, the uh, Israelis have said that Turkey has moved from being a friendly country uh, to a cause for concern. Very well said, Michael. Egypt's doing push-ups to the towel. All the best to you. Thanks very much indeed uh, for that uh, call. 
from the makers of Track and Trace comes the Boris Johnson sat-nav. Right, um, next right. Uh, no, left. Uh, I, I mean left. Uh, what? Yes, I, this, no, this left. Oh, crikey, you've missed it, bugger. Um, oh, bloody Tories. Or, or have you? Ah, uh, turn around. Or, in fact, don't turn around. Carry on. Yes. You have arrived at your destination. I've got the one and only Rania Kalik coming up to talk about Lebanon exactly a year after the devastating explosion there, still unexplained, still no accountability for those responsible for uh, the, at best, negligence on an epic scale uh, that led to this, still no compensation, still no proper rebuilding of a devastated city was the biggest explosion uh, short of a nuclear explosion uh, that the world has ever seen just think about that on top of all that lebanon's economic crisis has now reached the stage where people are hungry the currency has lost uh, a huge percentage of its value the corrupt of the earth who reduced Lebanon to all of this have fled, have escaped back to their uh, patrons by and large. No one has faced trial for the mismanagement and theft of Lebanon's resources. And on top of all that, of course, on the anniversary of the war in 2006, Israel is bombing Lebanon again. Rania Kalek, highly, highly polished journalist, presenter and writer, enormously popular. Her broadcasts looked for uh, all across the world uh, will be joining me in just a few seconds. Rania will be able to tell us about the corruption, about the explosion, it's almost like a mushroom cloud, that explosion. It's almost nuclear in its vision, the shockwave. Can you just imagine it? Have we got Rania yet? We're still uh, connecting to her. We're going to redial her. Should Latin be taught in schools? I've got no particular problem about it. Latin is the base of many European languages. It is used often in literature and in the law. Uh, I've got no particular animus against it, but it would probably be better for our children to learn Chinese or to learn Arabic uh, or to learn uh, Spanish, a language which is uh, studied, uh, uh, spoken rather, all across the world. Uh, I would have thought it's second in the European languages in terms of its reach. We're having uh, difficulty with Rania, but we'll get her, I promise. Now, uh, Richard Pearson says Latin doesn't really have a purpose in this day and age, a bit like Gaelic. And Barbara Lindsay says, I'm sure uh, Miss Snuffy 
could help with this question, Paul, but I'm thinking that Latin has connections with law, medicine, science, music, theology, philosophy, art, and literature. So I answered yes. And Thomas says, it's absolutely useless for working class people, irrelevant to our future. Finance management, life management, racial history, far more relevant. And Captain Thunk says, there's nothing wrong with it being available to be chosen by those that want to do it. Whilst dead, it is still pretty thoroughly embedded into our society and culture. It's not quite as irrelevant as some people first assume. It has more merit than some other subjects offered. We're finally connected to the wonderful Rania Kalek, who joins us now uh, on this anniversary of that horrific explosion. Rania, thank you uh, for that. Um, why, a year on, has nothing been done to repair the destruction or to find out who is responsible for this? Well, you know, Lebanon is a country in collapse at the moment. So there is a lot of chaos taking place across the country. The port explosion helped accelerate that economic collapse. And so the port explosion is all tied up and who's going to be blamed for the economic collapse as well. And it's also been heavily politicized, um, you know, despite the fact that really the entire political class is responsible for this because it was a huge act of criminal negligence. Uh, there are people in power who are trying to use it against their political opponents to point the finger at them. There's also an attempt by some uh, in adversarial countries uh, to try to pin the, pin the blame on Hezbollah, so which, you know, was probably the least uh, responsible party in, in this case, as well as with the economic collapse. So because of the politicized nature, because nobody wants to take credit for this awful uh, event that took place, even though the entire political class is culpable, and because there's also this economic collapse taking place that's really strangling the country, um, I'm not sure if we're ever going to see a thorough investigation into what took place, and we're probably not really ever going to see anybody held accountable. Tell us about that economic collapse. It seems to have accelerated uh, since the explosion, but it seems now to be reaching uh, a really crisis point. Yeah, I mean, right now, you know, I'm speaking to you from Beirut, where the, you know, this is the capital of the country and the state isn't capable of providing more than about two to three hours of electricity a day. Uh, right now, I'm lucky to be enough to, to have a building generator, which is why I have electricity to be able to talk to you at the moment. But much of the country uh, doesn't have access to either a generator or the luxury of fuel for the generator because the economic collapse has left the government completely broke and unable to import basic needs such as fuel and medicine. And it's leading to a real dramatic collapse of the country and creating kind of two classes of people. One is the majority of people who don't have access to dollars and therefore aren't able to keep up to the hyperinflation that's making basic products, uh, especially food, you know, unaffordable. And then the other class of people, the smaller class who have dollars and, you know, are able to, you know, stretch those dollars and, and purchase whatever they want. Uh, on top of that, you know, Lebanon is also 
under what I would call, you know, kind of an unofficial siege. I mean, uh, Lebanon's a small country. It's bordered by Syria on one side, which is suffering from these sanctions that the U.S. has imposed uh, under the Caesar Act, which actually penalizes neighboring countries if they do business with Syria. So Lebanon can't trade with its neighbor Syria. Otherwise, it'll be subjected to saying to U.S. sanctions, something it certainly can't afford at the moment, given that it already has its own economic collapse. Then to the south, you have Israel, uh, which is, you know, an enemy state. So, of course, there's no trade that can happen there. Israel, you know, is, you know an aggressive state uh, constantly bombing Lebanon, uh, fighting, you know, fighting with Lebanon. And then on the other on the other side, Lebanon has the Mediterranean Sea. But as we saw last August, the port exploded. That was Lebanon's a largest port. And so that really, really hurt the country. And on top of that, you know, you have this political class that created this Ponzi scheme economy. And it's important to note that Ponzi scheme economy was created by America's allies in Lebanon, uh, not by Hezbollah. You know, the, the the West and the international community are often trying to blame Hezbollah for this economic collapse, but really they're the least culpable party if for no reason other than the fact that they've been under U.S. sanction and, and have been incapable of being a part of the Lebanese banking system because it's completely tied up with Western financial institutions. So as a result, Hezbollah has been largely left out of this economy that ultimately collapsed because the people who created it created a Ponzi scheme that was always destined to collapse. And now that it's collapsed, there are some countries that are perfectly happy to watch Lebanon sink because they think that that can be used as a way to weaken Hezbollah. What's the political impact of this economic catastrophe? Is it, for example, ossifying the public in their traditional sectarian corrals? Or is it breaking down uh, those foolish sectarian divisions that have allowed these crooks to run Lebanon for as long as I've been going there, uh, which is 40 years and more? You know, I think it's a mix of those two things. I think a large, you know, when, whenever there's something that feels like an existential crisis, and I think this this really you could say for that would ha this would be the case for any country or any society, people tend to uh, cling to their community for shelter and safety, right, even more. And so you do see a bit of clinging to those uh, sectarian parties and the sectarian makeup of Lebanon even more because Lebanon has a very weak centralized state and the state is intentionally made to be weak uh, so that people have to rely on their communal leaders and their communal parties. And so as a result, because Lebanon doesn't have a centralized welfare system, in this situation, people are having to turn to those very sectarian parties in their towns and villages uh, to, to you know, make it through this very uh, terrible situation. So in that sense, it's kind of... Um, it's making those those sectarian lines more rigid. But in the other sense, I mean, there is a younger uh, population in Lebanon that, you know, has grown up under this very corrupt and very, um, you know, failing system uh, that's been incapable of providing them basic services. And they tend to blame the entire political class. But, you know, there isn't any sort of alternative 
organizing in Lebanon that has been effective or successful, uh, that has managed to really present an alternative to the current system. And, you know, I would argue that as awful as the sectarian system is, it's not the primary problem in Lebanon. It's, it's a problem, and it certainly reinforces this corrupt system. But at the foundational level, the problem in Lebanon is neoliberalism, a neoliberal economic order that was imposed on Lebanon after the civil war, and like I said, is reinforced through the sectarian system, as well as, you know, what's happening around the country. It's not, you can't isolate what's happening in Lebanon to just Lebanon. Lebanon is impacted by what's happening in Syria. It's impacted by what's happening in Palestine. It's impacted by what's happening in Iran and Iraq. It's impacted by U.S. imperialism and Western aggression that has really destroyed and collapsed this region and the ongoing economic warfare that continues to strangle countries like Iran and like Syria and by extension strangles Iraq and Lebanon as well. Well, it seems ripe for revolution uh, on the face of it, a uh, system which is collapsed uh, economically and politically is entirely dysfunctional. Uh, the criminals uh, are flying off if they can uh, to escape the consequences. I would have thought, I can't think of a more revolutionary situation uh, anywhere in uh, my view. So why isn't there a revolution? Why don't the you know, people who reject all of this rise up and take power in this weak state? That's a very good question. And I think it goes to the issue of the resiliency of this weak and dysfunctional system. It's a resilient system. Uh, and, you know, you have this kind of divide and conquer strategy. The sectarian makeup of it helps to reinforce it because it makes it possible, it makes it almost impossible to have a nationwide unified response to this corrupt ruling elite because ultimately what ends up happening, and we saw this happen unfortunately in October 2019 when there were massive protests that crossed sectarian lines uh, and crossed class lines calling you know for the, the end of this corrupt rule of this political elite but ultimately within just a few days those became very politicized and weaponized by various political sectarian parties and that's kind of an ongoing problem in Lebanon we've seen the same thing happen with the response to the port blast it almost seems like this the sectarian system has made it Lebanon's destiny to be incapable of you know putting forward a unified front against this system. And also, you know, there's so much meddling in Lebanon, right? It's Lebanon isn't a sovereign country because it's constantly being meddled in by Saudi Arabia, by the U.S., by Qatar, by the UAE, by Turkey. So whenever anything does happen, all of these different interests try to get their hands in it and try to twist it in the direction they want it to go in. And that ultimately ends up ruining things. And I think that this is a common thing you see, not just in Lebanon, but in other developing countries around the world who are subjected to this sort of out, outside meddling, it really denies people, locals, the ability to, you know, create, to, to, to have power over their own country's policies. And that's, that's what you see in Lebanon. Rania Kalek, I wish I could talk to you longer, but I can't. Thank you for joining us and stay safe in the lovely city of Beirut. Should Latin be taught in schools? I, I thought people wouldn't be interested. 
but they are. You can still vote right up until the end of the show. Let's talk to David uh, in Ireland on Latin. Go ahead, David. Hello, George. Nice to hear from you. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I totally agree with the fact that Latin should be taught in schools. Absolutely. Tell me why. Um, well, I mean, let's, let's face it. There's, we're in a time where most people can't even speak English. Um, and I think Latin, Latin gets back. Someone earlier on alluded to the fact that Latin is involved in science and art and literature and it's involved in every aspect of life. Yeah. And you, you, you can't just do away with it. I mean... It no, nobody's uh, doing away with it. There will always be prelates uh, who can speak, although the Pope has turned his face against the Latin mass, uh, unfortunately. Uh, the, there will always be uh, eggheads that can speak Latin, and maybe you're, maybe you're one of them. The question is, in, no. a crowded, in a crowded syllabus, is that really the best thing that we can now introduce? Wouldn't Chinese be a more uh, productive, profitable, important, new subject to introduce? Because I have to send my children to private uh, Chinese school. Uh, I think it would be a good idea if Chinese was taught in the, in the state schools, don't you? Well, George, to be honest, there's a certain amount of languages that people can learn. Uh, now, Melania Trump knows like four, maybe five of them, but like you're talking about the average person here, so Latin is probably non grata. Did you come on here, David, to deliver that joke? No, it's not a joke, George. <laughs> Anyway, last word to you. Go ahead. We're running out of time. Well, um, I would just like to say, George, um, happy birthday to your daughter. Thank and you. And good luck to you, mate. And I've always stuck behind you. And I think everybody should know Latin. God bless you. Thanks so much, uh, David. I appreciate it. Now, don't forget, you can download the podcast of this show uh, from tomorrow featuring a bite-sized version of all the interviews on tonight's show. Search Moats, the podcast, on whichever platform you normally uh, get your podcasts from. And if you're not, like me, normally a purchaser, there's no money involved, it's free, a consumer uh, of podcasts, consume this one. Clear the decks, the legend that is Norma is on the line and... There's, life is just not the same if we don't hear from her. Oh. Go ahead, Norma. By the way, I oh. owe you an apology. Uh, the Olympic Games turned out great. Britain, okay. Britain was fourth in the medal table, a phenomenal achievement. And mm -hmm. uh, the, I saw some of it, quite a lot of it actually, this week, and it was wonderful. Hats off oh, to wow. Team GB, hats off to Tokyo. Hats off to the Tokyo <laughs> Olympics. Go ahead, Norma. Oh, that's great, George. Now I've been sick with food poisoning this weekend. What? Um, I don't know why, and I'm still feeling a bit queasy. But 
Uh, before your show, I actually listened, which which relaxed me really. It was on TV, and it was Host Planet Suite. Well, and, that's wonderful piece of uh, music. We, yeah, do you know, we did, um, and the man gave a bit of an explanation about the planets, which was a bit different from our planet, and I suppose it was an escape. I mean, the composition of the music and the variety of all the planets was, you had Mars and Neptune, and then Jupiter was, I vow to me, like, be my country, that's the one I like. Mm. Saturn, bringer of old age. <laughs> and, um, you know, we'll stay me. forever young, Norma. Thee oh, and me will be forever young. Uh, and I hope you get over this bout of food poisoning. I don't know what it was that you ate that was dodgy, but avoid it from now on because we cannot have the mother of all talk shows without you. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. If it was, come back next week at the same time, same place, and bring another listener with you. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.